Good morning, everyone. Happy Easter. Happy Resurrection Sunday. Great to see you here. How are you guys feeling? Good. Oh, Roland's feeling good. That's what matters. That's fantastic. I appreciate it. I know it can be hard to get out the door sometimes in the morning, especially on you know days like this, but it's a beautiful day out. I actually got sunburned yesterday, which I cannot believe. I didn't know that you could get sunburned in April in New York, but apparently it can happen. So a little extra sunscreen for me next time. I like to feel like I've, I just have a nice radiant glow to me today. Just happens to be a little bit painful. So amen. I'm here. This is a, a, a special Sunday for us as a church where we're really focusing on the resurrection of Jesus. You know, of course, as Christians, every day is every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Every day we focus on the resurrection, don't we? Our faith it rests on the resurrection of Christ, and we're going to talk about that today. But you know, throughout history, Christians at some point, kind of through time, began celebrating the resurrection of Jesus on a Sunday in spring. And it kind of came to influence our culture so much that even people who don't care anything about Jesus are kind of talking about things like the resurrection today. So, you know what? As a, as a church, it seems like it's a great opportunity for us also to really lead that conversation about what does the resurrection mean. And so we're going to do that this morning. You can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll get there in a sec. In the meantime, here's a pop quiz. Does anyone know? How do they choose which Sunday is Easter Sunday? Does anyone actually know this? I, I had to confess, I didn't know. And actually, if you go down the rabbit hole, it, it's pretty deep. There's a lot of, you know, there's, well, <laughs> Mark said there's eggs in that rabbit hole. Yes, the rabbit hole, appropriately enough. Apparently, the, this Easter is apparently chosen as the first full moon, it's the Sunday after the first full moon following the vernal equinox. There you go. So that's the Sunday. So first you have to have the equinox, which they, which they say is March 21st. So then you have to have the full moon after that. And then it's the Sunday that's after that. So I guess the full moon came on the 6th. So it came on Thursday. And then that means today is Easter. I, I mean, you know, I don't make this up. This is, this is, I read this online. So this is science. Yeah, Roland says, yeah, there you go. Um, so I'm sure there's all this, you know, tradition and history and all this kind of stuff behind it. And as a church, honestly, you know, we can kind of just be honest. It's not something that we're big on, right? In terms of kind of the ritual and the tradition, we really want to focus more. We focus more on the kind of the relationship and the daily discipleship of following Jesus. But I know that there are people who find that stuff helpful. And if that's helpful for you, then amen. But the title of the sermon this morning, as we talk about the resurrection of Jesus, is this. The hope of Easter, Christ's victory over death. That's what we're talking about. The hope of Easter, Christ's victory over death. We're going to look at one scripture, as I said in 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to make two points, and then I'm going to send you home. So we're going to talk a little bit about hope, talk about the hope of Easter. You know, hope is a great thing. Hope helps us to be motivated. Hope, hope helps us to believe that what we're doing is not in vain. 
It helps us to continue to put one foot in front of the other. That when things look bleak, sometimes you can cling to hope and hope can take you through the storm. But the way that the world around us and, and kind of our culture talks about hope and the way that the Bible talks about hope are actually pretty different. You know, when the world talks about hope, it talks about having a positive outlook on life, seeing the best in the situation, being optimistic that things will work out. But Christian hope is different. Biblical hope is different. Christian hope isn't just about having a positive outlook. It's a conviction about what God has done in the past that leads to confidence about what God is going to do in the future. So let me say that again. Christian hope, biblical hope, is having a conviction about what God has done in the past that leads to confidence about what God will do in the future. And so it means that followers of Jesus throughout history, but you see this in the Bible as well, have lived lives of hope that are really defined by these, these two components. The first step to really come to a conviction about what God has done in the world. And then secondly, to say, okay, now that I have this conviction, what should that inspire me to be like? What should that inspire me to believe in, in the confidence that I should have about what God will do in the future? And I think this is, you know, seeing hope in this way is really important because, well, I would say for two reasons. The first is that it helps us to be people who are committed to the truth. Okay, one of the criticisms of, of religion, I would say, in general today, is that religious people, people, or I would say people of faith generally, can, that, that they come to their beliefs just based on their feelings. They say, well, this is what helps you to feel good. You know, you just, you just want to feel the right things. You want to just feel better about yourself. And so therefore you've made up these beliefs in order to justify those feelings. But actually, when you look at the, at the Bible, that's actually not at all the way that, that, the, that the Bible is. If you actually read the Bible, the things that the people believed often are in spite of everything that they feel. They actually don't. It's like, I wish that this weren't true. And yet it is. This is going to cost me my family, my livelihood, maybe my life. And yet it's true. So what else can I do? Their hope started not with their feelings, but with a firm conviction about what was true in the world. And the same thing should be true of us. We should be people who are committed to the truth. You know, of course, there are components of, of following Jesus that take faith. But the faith is not, it's not, hey, well, Believe that all this stuff happened just on faith. Take my word for it that it happened. And therefore, everything's going to work out. No, no, no. The Bible actually encourages skepticism. It says, evaluate the evidence. Dig. Search for what actually happened. Come to a real conclusion about this. But then once you do that, it takes faith to then live your life according to those beliefs. That's where the faith comes in. So it matters that we, if we define hope really about understanding, a conviction about what God has done in the past, that then translates to confidence about what he will do in the future. We have to start really committed to the truth. But then the second kind of 
uh, important component of that, of defining hope that way, is that it gives an incredible foundation for a life of real security, a life of real security. Christian hope starts with what God has done, but then from there, it builds on that foundation in impregnable confidence about what God will do in the future. Your life can be so deeply grounded that whatever storms you may go through, and we will go through storms, you can keep steady, never turned aside, firm through thick and thin. It's so much more than a positive perspective. It's a confidence that God will keep his promises. It's a confidence that God, no matter what, that God will keep his promises. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 15. We'll start in verse 1, talking about the hope of Easter, Christ's victory over death. You with me? Okay, here we go. Paul's talking to the, the church in Corinth. He says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of the first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Falling asleep, he means has died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. So here Paul summarizes the gospel that he has preached to them. He says, Christ has died for their sins, according to the scriptures. You know, Paul's claim is that Jesus' story didn't start at his birth. He's saying for, for thousands of years, there are tribes and peoples all over the world that came up with these, you know, hundreds and even thousands of, of these deities and they would try to find meaning and, and, and uh, control in their lives and in lives of chaos by trying to kind of uh, appeal to these deities to try to find some way through the chaos in their lives. And yet there was a totally bizarre people group, the Israelites, who believed something totally different, that there was one God above all of it, and that this God didn't need to be manipulated and controlled, but that he created humanity in his image and that he loved them and desired intimate connection with them. He gave human life value and dignity. And this was a radical belief that was completely insane to the world around them. And out of this wrestling with their faith, these people found promises of God that one day a savior would come. He promised that they, a savior would come around the time of the Roman empire, that he would be a descendant of David, 
that he would be born in Bethlehem to a virgin, that he would lead a life without sin, and that he would be put to death as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. This is all hundreds of years before Jesus came. And these prophecies were spoken, they were sung, they were memorized by this community, and then actually they were even rehearsed again and again every day in the animal sacrifices in the temple courts. Blood was shed by innocent victims that atone for the sins of the community to remind them that actions have true moral significance, that they weren't good and evil, weren't just these made-up human concepts, they were metaphysical realities. It's not just something that, you know, that we tell ourselves in order to function as a society, which is some of that the evolutionary biologists will tell you. It's, no, they say this good and evil are real. And so evil has to be paid for to be able to be in relationship with God. So Paul says that Jesus came and he died according to the scriptures. He was buried according to the scriptures. And according to the scriptures, he came back to life on the third day. Now, a modern audience kind of starts to giggle a little bit at that. He came back to life? Like, come on, seriously? Like, isn't that a little old fashioned? Like who actually believes that? You know, we think that the ancient audience was, were, they were simple minded. Like they would have believed anybody came back to life. And yet when you actually look back at the scriptures, and this is why it's so important to not just get ideas about Christianity from what you read in the press, but to read the Bible for yourself. You actually see that these are people who are just like us, who are skeptical just like us. They also didn't know anybody who came back from the dead. They were, they were just as skeptical as we are. And that's why Paul reminds them. I mean, you can look through this list that he says. He, it's almost like, you know, he's talking about the fundamentals of the gospel, right? But then he has to go through all this evidence of, you know, you really can believe this. Look at all these people that saw him risen. It says he appeared to Cephas, to Peter, then to the 12. He appeared to 500 brothers and sisters at the same time. He appeared to James, and then, of course, to Paul himself. It's like Paul is saying, I know this sounds crazy, right? This sounds crazy that he actually came back to life, and yet it's true. He really did. You know, skeptical, even non-Christian scholars who look at the letter of 1 Corinthians agree that this is one of the earliest books of the Bible that was written. It was probably written about 30 years after Jesus' death. And so this is why Paul says many of them are, many of the witnesses of the resurrection were still living, right? He's saying, you know, these are people who saw him maybe in their 20s and now they're in their 50s. You can go and talk to them. Like, if you have questions about this, you're skeptical about this, trust me, I was skeptical too. I persecuted the church. Go and talk to those people. See that it's real. The ancients had just as much skepticism as we did about Jesus' resurrection. And the thing is, and this is what I love about it, Paul never expected them to have faith in it in spite of the evidence. He wanted them to believe because of the evidence. And this is one of the great things about, about the scriptures and about, about Jesus is that he doesn't ask us to, to turn off our brains in order to follow him. He says, no, use your brains, question, find the evidence, 
come to a conviction about what God has done in the world. And then let that be the foundation for your hope. So here's my question for you. And I could actually, I could actually use a tissue if somebody has a tissue. I'm going to keep sniffing into the microphone. Or I can, if you have a tissue, I'd appreciate it. This is awesome. Come on. See, this is why the Newsoms are amazing. You've got Salim doing all this. Sephora's like ready. It's like I could ask for anything and Sephora will come up and it's like, uh, I, need a, I need a fresh fish. Sephora, you have a fresh, like, excuse me for a second. Amen. We're back. Commercial break. Okay, I sound better. Thanks, Phil. I appreciate that. I'll try not to touch anything now. All right. Okay, uh, where were we? Okay, here's my question. All right. Are you convinced that God raised Jesus from the dead? For real? Are you convinced? I mean, I understand if you're not. But if you're not, I would say, go and look at the evidence. Go investigate it. I'm not asking you to just take my word for it. Go and figure it out. I believe the evidence is there. But I just, I would, you know, even if you kind of grew up believing it or you thought, oh, well, of course I believe that. I know that we live in a culture that is so skeptical of everything. That anything that kind of resembles a, a question of faith, our, skept, our, our culture is so quick to tear it down. And, you know, maybe like me, you live in a, in a world where, you know, you'll, like, I, you know, I read the New York Times, and, I, and I'm listening to the radio in the car, and I'm reading, and I'm, you know, talking to my coworkers, and, and I think nobody says it explicitly, but the attitude constantly is one of skepticism. Skepticism about faith, skepticism about anybody who seems motivated by religion or anything like that, and honestly, some of it's deserved, isn't it? Like, I mean, we can be honest. People of faith haven't been great examples of Jesus in a lot of ways, but it can, it can sour our minds so that we can look at things like this in the Bible, look at the resurrection of Jesus and say, eh, maybe it's just kind of, you know, maybe it's just kind of made up. But what that does is it ultimately erodes our hope because our hope has to start with the conviction about what God has done in the world. So my challenge, I would say, go and investigate, but also take this time to to get away from some of the noise and get away from some of the, the technology and all these influences around us and go and, and spend time in, in meditation and in prayer and really wrestling with the big questions of life to come to this conviction about what God has done in the world. All right, you with me there? All right, so that's the first point. Second one I promise is shorter. We're gonna keep reading. We can skip down to, to verse 20. You know, Paul is kind of questioning the, the Corinthian church has said, like, oh, well, you know, maybe the resurrection didn't actually happen. And Paul says, come on, get out of that garbage. Like, that's not, that doesn't work. You can't be a Christian. You can't have a church if we're not, if we don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. But then in verse 20, he continues. He says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, 
authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And we'll stop there. You know, remember that Christian hope. Okay, I'm just going to say it over and over again because maybe you'll remember it. Is a conviction about what God has done in the past that leads to confidence about what God will do in the future. And so here Paul moves from this conviction about God raising Jesus from the dead. And he says, okay, well then what does that mean for our future? And the key to this is, is this first little uh, description that he uses of Jesus. He says he is the first fruits from the dead. You know, Lauren and I had a garden for a couple of years. We're hoping to get one going this year as well. And I love having a garden. I don't know if, you know, this is one of the great things about living in this area is that you can grow things. It's like a, it's a, you have a, a great little opportunity and it almost feels like alchemy, right? You can take these little seeds or buy these little scrubby plants. You can put them in the ground, maybe sprinkle some water on them here and there. Sometimes you don't even need to. And literally they just produce free vegetables for you. Like, like how is that possible? Doesn't that seem just amazing? Like you turn like dirt and water and sunlight into vegetables. Maybe I'm just like a little thick, but, and they're delicious. Like, and they're better than what you can buy from the store. It's, it's honestly incredible. And so I love growing tomatoes. We've done cucumbers and other things in the past. And even the kids actually are more willing to eat the, the fruit or the, you know, the vegetables from the garden than the ones that they, that we actually get from the store because they help to grow them and they'll pick them. And, and honestly, they do, they taste better. But you know, the process, if you've ever had a garden, is you see the plant and stuff, and it seems like nothing happens for a long time. And then eventually the, the uh, stalks start to grow, and then you get kind of the, you know, a little bit of a structure going. And then at some point you see the little fruits just, just starting, you know, and you see the little baby ones. You're like, oh, there's, you know, we're starting to get some tomatoes, you know. And it looks, you know, it's tiny and probably disgusting if you ate it, but you wait a little bit and it gets bigger. And, and usually there's like one or two that are kind of, like the first ones, right, that are coming out. And you get to that day where you finally are ready to pick the first one. And that is an awesome day, right? You take that thing and you're like, I got my first tomato, you know, and you go around to the neighbors and you're like, yeah, rejoice with me. I have found my lot. No, 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 that's a different scripture. All right, but you, you're psyched because, well, but here's the thing. You're excited, not just for the one tomato, but because the one tomato signals the harvest that's coming. That one tomato signals what's going to come. And Paul says, this is the same thing about Jesus. Jesus is just one man resurrected from the dead. But he says, he's the first fruit of the harvest that's coming. The harvest is all of our resurrection of those that trust in God and those that trust in Christ for all of us to be resurrected with him at the last day. Paul says that Jesus is undoing the work of Adam. That Adam sinned and brought sin and death into the world. That all of us have followed Adam's footsteps of sin and death. But that Christ ushers in a harvest of life, the promise of the resurrection. And, not, and this is cool. We'll look at verse 24, because it's not just the resurrection. It's actually even more than that. 
He says, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. At the end of time, Christ will destroy all dominion and authority and power and anything that has an evil influence in the world. It will be wiped away. And Christ will reign as king. Unopposed by evil, every enemy under his feet. And then he says, death itself will be destroyed. The hope of Easter is Christ's victory over death. But here's my second question. Are you confident that as you trust in God, that he will rescue you even from death itself? Are you confident that as you trust in God, he will rescue you even from death itself? Are you living in the age of the harvest where the first fruits have already been gathered? You're at the verge of an incredible harvest of life to come. Death is being undone and will be wiped away. And so does that give you confidence? The life that you can live today, free to love, free to give, totally unhindered by the fear of the world, because who can touch you if death itself cannot hold you? We are free to give and love because God can never be stopped in his love for us. That kind of life can handle any trial, can handle any challenge, any persecution, any discouragement. It has a conviction about what God has done in the past, that he's brought Jesus back from the dead. And it has an unshakable confidence about what God will do in the future, rendering death itself destroyed. This is the hope of Easter, Christ's victory over death. Let's live in that hope. Amen.